Today on our show, Gloria Burgle goes west and the secret origins of Anastasi are revealed. We're talking about Fargo Season 3, Episode 3, The Law of Non-Contradiction. Stay tuned. You're tuning into the destination for TV superfan discussion, After Buzz TV. And now, let the buzz begin. There's a whole show of howls. It's just this. It's just this, guys. For I was just surprised it kept going. 40, 40 some odd minutes of howling. Here we go. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to ABTV Fargo, your one-stop shop for these three specific people talking about Fargo for an hour a week. <laughs> yeah. I am Lex Michael. I am all over social media at the Lex Michael, and as always, I am joined by. Hey, I'm Dave Child. You can find me. Is this on? I don't know. There I am. He's here. I am Dave Child. You can find me at Mr. Dave Child or DaveChild.com. I'm Dave Child. I'm also on the chat. So please talk to me on the chat if you're listening. I know we're finally at our regularly scheduled time, so we're back. If you're if you're one of the nine people watching now, chat us up. Tell us what you think of the episode. We're ready to listen. Chat us up. I am Tara Erickson. You can find me on Twitter at the Tara Erickson or on YouTube.com backslash Tara Erickson. Yes. So as Dave mentioned, of course, the chat is up. Please, we love it when you guys join us in the chat live. If you're not joining us live but you want to join in the conversation, you can do so on Twitter using the hashtag ABTVFargo. Yeah. And, of course, on iTunes, like, subscribe, rate us five stars. This is really important, you guys. A, because it lets our producers know that you like what we're doing. And yeah. B, because I literally need those five-star reviews to live. Not it, not food. A, it's a sustenance. Not water. Not shelter. Certainly not. No, those sweet, sweet five-star reviews. So so get on it. Because five. We, five we love you. Stars. We love you and we love your love. Five stars. So, so friends... Friends, boobalas, boobalas, hey boobalas. We got, we got what, for all intents and purposes, seems to be a fairly self-contained oneer this week. Yeah, I think a lot uh, that we're going to be seeing tie into the rest of the show thematically, but plot-wise, a little bit of a, of a cul-de-sac, as it right. were. But how did you guys, right off the bat, how did you feel overall about this hour? I liked it a lot. I'm a little, I'm gonna pat myself on the back a little bit because I'm a little proud of myself because I said that. I think this episode, well, I mostly said I think the actor is going to be a lot like Mike Yanagita from the original Fargo movie, and the whole episode was him. The whole episode was basically taking a detour that doesn't really go anywhere except except helps the character herself. It doesn't help the plot along. It helps the character find something herself, and I love that. I like that it felt like it was an homage to the original movie because of that. And also was a nice little homages to other Cohen brother stuff. So I st- I still loved it. Yeah, we'll hit a bunch of the Cohen homages because yeah. there were a lot of real big specific ones. Right. I thought. What yeah. do you think? I love the animation part. I thought that the robot had a lot of similarities with Gloria. Yes. Right. Uh, which I thought was amazing. And I loved also the fact that uh, all of the stuff around Hollywood, I was like, I used to live in East Hollywood. And right. that's right next to that premiere motel. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Santa Claus convention would definitely be there. <laughs> uh, as well as I went to Bordner's a lot, which is also in Hollywood. So anyway, you know, you see stuff where you live and you're like, hey, that. Which very, is cool. It's very comfortable. That's a place I know. Where was yeah. the diner? Was the diner Patty's or was it somewhere else? I was trying to figure that out. I don't I, know. I didn't recognize the interior. I do know that it was the same interior from the Big Lebowski, where the oh. nihilists go and eat. 
Oh. Uh, at one point, I did find that out, but I didn't find out where that actually was. There were a couple <laughs> of Big Lebowski nods tonight. Some of the locations felt very similar. The, the fact of spinning these noir conventions, of course, was very much something that Big Lebowski did. Right. There was a moment at the motel where you see this neon star symbol uh, affixed to the wall behind the characters that the camera's tracking. And uh-huh. it's one of these symbols that you see constantly rotating in Big Lebowski in, I guess it's the dude's mind's eye, if you will. Right. Oh. Okay. But okay. so, right up top, as we always do, wanted to hit on the title of this episode. Yes. Now, uh, yes, Dave, Dave, did you did you find some some gold in your in your treasure hunt for the title's meaning? Well, I found this was interesting because this is the first non-bridge term I think we've come across. Even though it sounds like a bridge term because it's one of yes, the law of non-contradiction. Like, yeah, the law of non-contradiction. It sounds like a lot of the rules we've been playing with, but this is actually a logic. Um, scenario and did you look this up as well because I could be wrong in this but what I understood is it's kind of the opposite of the Schrodinger's cat scenario so in Schrodinger's cat something can be dead or alive it's the cat's in the box it's either alive or dead but because you don't know it's both at the same time but the law of non-contradiction is it can't be if it's alive, then it can't be dead. If it's dead, it can't be alive. Yes. It's the exact opposite of Schrodinger's Essentially, cat. right. It's this It's this theory that no two contradictory ideas can exist at the same time. Right. Right. So, which is interesting, because I was trying to figure out how it worked into the episode, and there's certain points that it comes up, like... When uh, Leland Palmer, Ray Wise... Which, by the way, I had no clue. I don't know if either one of you guys knew that he was going to be showing up to no. in, in this episode nope. before watching it. I had no idea. But he's a guy that's it's great every time he shows he, up. He, no joke, may be my favorite actor. Right. Gun to, gun to my head, if I had to pick one person, <laughs> I would probably pick Ray Wise. Not just for his work on Twin Peaks, although that is certainly one of my favorite pairings of actors and role that there is. Mm -hmm. But also, like, all right, uh, last year at Comic-Con, I I was lucky enough to get to meet him. Uh, He was doing press for Batman the Killing Joke. Awesome. And I was struck by, the dude has been in the business for decades and decades, and he still seemed so genuinely tickled to be there. Like, the dude was so light on his feet and so whimsical. He, like, broke into a dance at one point, not for anybody, just walking from one side of the room to the other. I don't think he knew people were specifically watching him. Great. He just, like, kicked it up and, like, flutterfoot thing for a second. Lover it was. Anyway, great. you were saying. Yeah, he just... <laughs> he's a guy that, like, I was drawing some parallels to him and Gloria, and they both kind of exist in... If we could just talk about him for a chunk. He's <laughs> he's a guy that has been traveling for, like, six six times it's out like of the six, like, It's Tuesday, and it's Tuesday his sixth flight that sixth week. flight. So he's someone who's ca- always caught in between traveling and he's kind of caught in between one place and another. The way Gloria seems to, we mentioned in previous episodes, is always kind of caught in the middle of something and not right. quite at a destination. And he brings up this kind of Schrodinger's divo- divorce, that uh, joke story where he talks about how a soldier who is, when he's about to go off, gives his divorce papers to his wife and says, if I die then we've always been divorced. But if I come back, we've never been divorced. So it's that's the Schrodinger side of it. But what we're saying in the title is it's the opposite, how that can't be true, how you have to be either married or be divorced. Right. It's a different side of it. And I think that also is talking about Gloria's look into kind of following this lead 
how if if it exists it must have something to do with the actual murder but that's not necessarily true so it's it's complicated, but I feel like it's something there. Well, and I mean, they were diving back and forth because when Glory went into the motel, it, that was the same motel that Thaddeus lived in. And right. the second she opened the door, it automatically became Thaddeus was alive. And in that that frame with Gloria, I mean, he's dead. So it's like the non-conscious where seen both stories where he's living yeah. and he's also dead. So yeah. it's, it's one of those things where it's like, we know he's dead, but here's his story which led up to it, which is like they end up at the same place basically i mean it's, right. it's renovated but it's like that's kind of how i saw it a little bit but i guess the question is like are they saying because because he has this past it can't have anything to do with the actual murder like that the way that it's if it was like a schrodinger's cat if it was on that side of it i would understand it more because it's almost like he's both living and dead because she's reliving the past right but it seems to be the opposite of that term so I'm I'm a little confused about what the theme is actually. Well, for me, I mean, I, I I like like you guys did. I drew the connection to Gloria specifically, and we've been seeing now for the past couple of of weeks that Gloria's life is full of these contradictions. She, mm-hmm. for example, she's right. both chief of police and isn't now. Not chief, she's yeah. she's both married but not married anymore yeah. for example and then we even you can spread it out to other characters I mean Anastasi both was and was not Anastasi Yuri Gurka was and was not Yuri Gurka in that in that prologue yeah maybe it's simply she's trying to find this rule she's trying to find the law of non-contradiction but she will always be unable to do it it's it's also like how in the robot Scenario, as you were bringing up, mm-hmm. how the robot had a lot to do with Gloria. She, he's someone. The robot is someone who just wants to help, but isn't really helping. Can never really help, but can only observe. So, is it a helper or observer? So, it's kind of also kind of stuck in this limbo, as well as it's trying to find its way. But home. I think he could, but then nobody gave him a chance. Just like Gloria, they don't give her enough of a chance. Just like when Detective Hunt comes in and he looks her up and down, True. like, oh right, you're a chief. Give me a break. I'll let you know if the plate comes back. Like, nobody gives her the time of day. Especially now with, like, the new chief. Everyone just, like, pushes her aside. Kind of like the robot. And she's, like, screaming, not out loud. But I feel like the robot is like, I can help. Where, like, Gloria just, like, doesn't say anything. But on the inside, she's like, I can help. Right. Like, I feel... She... and Yeah. That's her, you know, the dilemma with her, the contradiction. And what and yeah. what that brings me back around to in my brain as I'm listening to this conversation is it I agree with you completely. Like it, it's straddling these these two lines with a chasm in between. And that's that's your you're trying to resist the law of non contradiction by trying to be both of these things simultaneously. Right. But then go back to last week and what uh VM Vargo was talking about, this this inescapable reality that I think you're seeing a lot of people that are trying to be multiple seemingly contradictory things at one time right yeah and the reality is of course if we are to accept the law of non-contradiction you cannot be both things simultaneously that inescapable reality varga referred to will eventually catch up with you Yeah, yeah she will ultimately be one thing she will ultimately not be the chief or be the chief like if mm-hmm. we want to simplify it to just her placement on the on on the police force right or yeah. the divorce thing, because in the bed, the pillow move, with then she she was asleep, and then she was like, oh, I'll turn off this light, like all those things that her husband probably did, right. or that she did for her husband. Oh, good catch. Yeah, that was like, oh, yes, I get it. The divorce, although it was brought up at the bar, that to me was yeah. like, those are all the telltale signs of that's what you used to do for your husband, and now you're like, 
trying to fall asleep to forget about it and be like, no, 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 and then be like, I got to turn off that that light too because he's not going to be here to do that. Right? Yeah, and that was especially a sad moment after after she was just propositioned by Mac from uh, <laughs> Always Sunny and also meets Ray Wise and kind of you get that feeling that she could have brought one of the guys home. And, yeah. and yeah, uh, Hunt, I believe, is uh, Rob McElhenney's character's yeah. name. Yes. This this police officer, who I really, he's essentially playing a, a slightly more competent version of Mac, which made me real happy. Right. Yeah. But he literally, he, he offered himself to her in, in perhaps the crassest way possible. Oh, all, all she had to do was yeah. say, yeah, okay. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, he does that L.A. thing, which is try to mock someone's accent from wherever they come from. That's a very L.A. move. That's a very... <laughs> every time you hear someone... I'm from uh, around Boston originally. I don't really have an accent, but every now and then I drop my R's. And it's enough that people will focus on it and just start to, like, do the Boston accent at me. And I'm like, okay. It's like, all right, dude. Stop, stop. Okay. The other thing I thought was interesting that I found myself thinking about uh, in relation to the title, but as applies to this episode's place in the season so far. Mm-hmm. We're three episodes in, and already it feels like we're we're suddenly telling a very different story. And I thought it was interesting if we're talking about two seemingly contradictory things existing at the same time. Ostensibly, this season is the story of the the Stussy twins, yeah, and their this calamitous uh, murder that spun spun out of their rivalry. But this is not the story that Gloria is in. Gloria is in an entirely separate story. She has no idea who, until the very end of this episode, who Maurice Lefay is. That this mm-hmm. might tie into anything beyond somebody breaking in and killing her stepfather for reasons right. unknown. I think that's a really interesting. Point to consider, especially when Noah Hawley's been very public about wanting this season to pick apart the idea of these all being stories. Yeah. 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 Each and, character has a different, like, lifeline that we're actually tapping into. Right. And there's a great, I read a great interview with the director of this episode, was John Cameron, which is interesting because he's actually someone who has deep connections with the Coen brothers himself. He was a line producer on the original Fargo movie and he was a producer on a lot of the Coen Brothers movies and he was B unit director on on a lot of Fargo episodes but also on a lot of Coen Brothers movies themselves even on like Big Lebowski I think he was like connected to all the and he's kind of the continuity through line to like sure. connects them to the Coen Brothers cuz he's active in the show and he's also like cl- works closely with the Coen Brothers all the time and this was the first TV show he directed since Hercules. Since, like, Kevin Sorbo's Hercules. The Legendary Journeys. Yeah, he was, like, a B-unit director until, like, now. And he had a great interview on Hollywood Reporter. I suggest everyone looks it up. And he talked about how this episode was... He he called it the Mike uh, Yanagita episode. And that's exactly what they were going for. That it was something that could help the characters, but not the actual plot and he also talked about how uh gloria even finds at the end the kind of conclusion to the episode not to get ahead of ourselves but the little conclusion to the episode was that this was just her saying this was just a story everything i'm like looking at now is just a story it has nothing to do with the actual 
crime, and that that's the theme. He even says in the interview, that's the theme to the whole season, is like picking apart what is a story and what, what was considered a true story is now just a story. Well, so let's let's dive into this particular story, yeah. although I pause to note, it, it does seem very separate from anything else that's been going on. We discover that, oh, Thaddeus Mobley's life and his decision to flee Los Angeles does not ultimately lead to his death, except for the way in which it does. His discovery of that name on the inside of the toilet yeah. is what ultimately is going to seal his fate decades later. If he happened to puke into a different toilet, I mean, any right. number of little variables, dude may still be with us today. Yeah, and I get the feeling that he totally abandoned his authorship. We we have a reason, there's a reason why he changed his name, and there's a reason why he found, all, we found all those, like, uh, books hidden away is because he's running away from something. And so we do find out what he's running away from and what that whole box is about. Yeah, so we we open the episode in the 1970s where we meet uh, Thaddeus Mobley, a successful writer. He's got an award. He's approached by a producer played by Fred Melamed, who, uh, of course, I, like many other people, first discovered in The Coen's A Serious Man. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful actor playing this producer who says, I want to help you turn your book into a motion picture. Yeah. If you want to, by the way, watch Lady Dynamite. He's wonderful on Lady He's Dynamite. He's really good on Lady Dynamite. Yes. And uh, show. In a World. Have you seen yeah, In a World? In a World is like his shining movie where he's like a voiceover guru. And her and his daughter is trying to like played live by, up in his shadows. Played by Lake uh, Bell. Yes, Lake Bell. Lake Bell. Yes. I was like, what's her name? Yes. Who also directed it? I, think. I, I believe she did. Yeah, it's really, really good. So we, very wonderful little movie, and like the rivalry between the two of them is fantastic. Fred yeah. Melman is always is 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 a wonderful presence. I'm really glad to see him turn up. It's so many good character actors in Fargo. It's like they love character actors, and they try to. Put them in as many different things as possible. Well, when Shea Wiggum showed up last week, I was like, man, it's like when you thought this show could not sustain one more wonderful character actor, yeah. but now it seems like they're literally trying to break me with the murderer's row of talent oh on display. God. Okay, yeah, continue, because if we... So he finds... He meets he meets Zimmerman, Howard Zimmerman, and through Howard Zimmerman, he also meets an actress yes. named uh, Vivian Lord. Mm-hmm. And I gotta say, I love the name Vivian Lord. I think it's like the perfect combo of we need a Hollywood starlet name because it's close to Vivian Lee, but it's also close to Tracy Lord, which is uh, Phil is Catherine Hepburn's like character's name in Philadelphia Story, but is also a porn actress named Tracy yeah, Lord, right. yes, who was also in uh, Cry Baby, John Waters' film. I think back she also showed up in uh, Zach and Mary Make a Porno. Yeah, she's she's like one of the more successful porn actresses who's has branched into actual movies. So it's kind of a nice... Someone who is kind of twisted and malformed by Hollywood, like a young starlet, is kind of... Vivian Lord is just the perfect name for... Yeah, the Lord puts her as top league porn star, for sure. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. but also you have that Vivian kind of movie star in it, too, so it's it's a nice balance. But she is played by... uh, Francesca Francesca Eastwood. Eastwood, Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Clint Eastwood's daughter... And her mother is Frances Fisher, who plays her older. Which is great when Gloria finally goes and talks to her in the present. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, (laughs) and she's also a known character actress. But her daughter, Francisca Eastwood, is kind of just, her career is just kind of starting off. She's only been in a couple of her dad's films. Mm. And she hasn't been in a lot. And she's gorgeous. Yeah. And she was really good in this episode. So you did see... You literally saw someone with the same DNA 
at the kind of like later in their career and real early in their career in the same show playing the same character because when I first saw them I was like wow that's great casting they look so much alike yeah their right. eyes are insanely this the same <laughs> yeah but so you can see because as you as you point out just lovely lady. You can see why maybe the allure of a beautiful woman possibly being interested in him and also the possibility of getting to turn your work into a a big movie. You can see why maybe Thaddeus, new to the L.A. scene, uh, maybe would succumb to these temptations. And also succumb to the stash because he needed that. He went went for the stash for Vivian. Stash. <laughs> and then the stash won. <laughs> stash always the wins. Stash always wins in the end. But at a certain point, it's like you got to go, man. Like once, once Zimmerman, the the producer, starts asking you to cut him checks to oh, grease man. the oh, wheels, yeah. as it were, Ugh. you got you almost start to pity Poor Thaddeus boy. because as, as intelligent and together as he seems to be, right. this is so not his world, and no. he truly does not realize how out of his element he is. All it took was her uncrossing and crossing her legs, and he turned around, and he's like, I got a book advance. Yeah. That was it. That was it, and also the seat closer. Moved yeah, the seat she closer. moved over, too. Yes, yes. That was enough. But the leg was the, the tag right the, there. The scooch. The scooch in <laughs> the, the leg. scooch in the legs. Yep. That's all you need. <laughs> so is that is that your move? A scooch in the legs. Scooch in yeah, legs. that's what you do. And that's, then you narrow it down to the stash. And then, yeah. and then Solid. Pop up the stash in like one scene if <laughs> it's suddenly there. That's where you get it. Scooch and legs, Dave. Scooch legs stash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> scooch legs. Hashtag scooch legs stash. <laughs> Yikes. Ew. Um, so, so this obviously too begins a, a chain of pretty overt references to Barton Fink. Oh, the Barton Fink references are so good. Which I don't know where Barton Fink falls for you guys as far as your, your favorite Coen Brothers movies. Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. me, it's top three probably it's up there but it's also one of the forgotten ones i feel it does yeah, not get like anywhere a, near as much love no. as i feel like it should yeah, yeah it's I agree. it's really good if if anyone hasn't seen barton fink it is about a uh, um, playwright who moves to la to become a screenwriter he comes into contact with a lot of writer's block and dealing with a producer who keeps wanting him to make a movie puts him in a crappy motel and he's stuck in his writer's block until he meets a woman who he kind of falls for, and then who was also like uh, a writer herself. She dies. Meanwhile, he's spoilers for Barton. Oh, Fink. sorry. <laughs> you know what? That didn't happen, or did it? When did it I'm come sorry. out? Ninety ninety-five. Yeah, if you haven't seen Barton Fink by now. Anyways, John Goodman's in it too. It's really 1991. good. Ninety-one. Ninety-one. John Turturro, guys. Yeah, that's all I'm going to tell you. Uh, John Goodman's amazing it's in it. Crazy good. He's amazing, and John Turturro plays the playwright. It's really good, um, and, and also in that. In that movie, there is a mystery box. Yep. Much like in this one, there's yep. a mystery box. God, this one's creepy. There's a lot of mystery boxes. The other one, the other one is pretty creepy yeah. too. I ain't this got one was creepy. This one was creepy for you. <laughs> Whatever. Just a weird. I didn't see it, and it's just, just a light. And I thought it was gonna be a fun little box. There's like a LED light, an LED light in there, and then the freaking hand comes out. Right. I can't be doing that. So that's. <laughs> uh. Uh-uh. 
That machine. Uh, and the switch too. Does the switch not resemble the robot switch? Oh in yes, the it does. no, exactly. I wrote. Right. Yeah, I was like exactly like the robot switch. Yeah, we got to talk. We're going to talk about the robot business in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of the <laughs> the Barton Fink nods too, the maybe the two most overt ones mm-hmm. are uh, obviously uh, Gloria on the beach. I think was designed very specifically to mimic right. mimic the famous shot from Barton the Fink. Famous shot. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, Me then neither. two of course uh, in Barton Fink, Steve Buscemi, uh, who pops up in a bunch of Coen Brothers movies, plays uh, Bell hop named Chet right. and uh, part of Chet's introduction involves Barton going up to the desk hitting the bell the vibration right. on the bell filling the room and just sustaining and then Chet walks up very casually with one finger and stops it, it which, yep. which we saw again tonight which made me uh, very happy not tonight whenever we watched it yeah. tonight today when are we I don't know what is time who knows <laughs> um, just to talk about that box a little bit that box is known as I think at a useless machine. I think it's like called the useless machine. It was kind of popular on Reddit and a lot of like do-it-yourself sites. It was built initially by an artist, uh, I think around 2010, maybe later, where it was... The whole point of it is just to get turned off right away. And if you look it up online, you can go down a rabbit hole of everyone building their own useless machines. And it's just about... You turn it on, and then it turns itself off. And that's all it is. And I thought that was perfect because it's also... It connects with Gloria's sense of technology. The way that she's tied into technology is really interesting. It's a lot like the robot in in the story... But it's also that's kind of how she sees computers. It sees all the all the computers are just useless to her, and she's not connected to it at all. And there's some great shots, even in this episode, where in the diner where everyone's on their phones, and then it pans over, and she's the only one not on her phone because yeah. she's so disconnected from from technology. Not even on Facebook. Not, not even, even on, on Facebook. Much, much to the the horror and dis- dismay of <laughs> oh, Officer Hunt. Yeah. Man. So, all right, we've got, yeah, we got we've got the mystery box, and I'm curious to see how or if that will continue to play much of a role. My big lingering question from this episode is probably just where where the box come from. Yeah, but I don't think we're gonna see. I mean, that's right. all the box is. The box right. is just a metaphor to kind of have be what she sees herself. Right. She feels like all she's doing is pushing the switch, kind of going down this rabbit hole of. What does this lead mean? And ultimately, it has nothing to do with the murder. So it's like it turning off the switch again. Yeah. So it's just it's just a metaphor for the whole episode. And I think for how she's viewing herself right now. And um, she's also... Um, to go back to the robot, she's also a stranger in a strange land, just like the robot. She is, she's got that Minnesota nice just being like, I can help. And then just like getting... Getting her arm ripped off, right? As she, as right. She like processes through this. Well, and I certainly don't mind the idea that we may, and in fact, probably won't ever get a definitive answer about the origin of that box. I think it's interesting that it was right. there with a pair of shoes. Yeah. Did so, so to me that raises two distinct possibilities uh, immediately. A, it was left the, with the shoes accidentally by the last person who was in the room and somehow cleaning missed it. Or B, I don't think it was cleaned. 
or was it? Yeah, <laughs> never, I, I just I was, don't think it was clear. I don't want to. I don't want to smack talk this hotel. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they they work hard and whatever. People go there, Dave Child. Yeah, I'm not trying to hurt any small businesses today, Dave. I think they hurt themselves when they start <laughs> off with, "Oh, so you want it for the hour?" Then <laughs> what was that? Oh, nothing. Um, it's true, but the, and there's no view, but there is a smell. There is a smell. Uh, but then the other possibility is that it was left there specifically for her, and in the mm-hmm. absence of any assumption that we'll get an answer. Answer, I do think it's fascinating that there is potentially an entire other story there, much like we got this week. This is a fairly ancillary story to the story we've been following. I right. like that within that story, there's this seed planted where you could probably follow whoever left the shoes in the box there for an entire season as well, if they were so inclined. Mm-hmm. Sure. I feel like that's just, that. that's all we're going to see of this, because I think it also leans towards what they were kind of getting a sense of in the hotel room as well as what Barton Fink does is when you're stuck in a hotel room, especially a dingy hotel room, you have this feeling of impermanence where it's like you don't really belong there. People can come in and leave stuff for you. Like her bag was just left there empty with a whatchamacallit mm-hmm. like wrapper in it by what was his name? Hank? Uh, Hunt. 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 So he just like went into her room and left it. And I feel like the box and the shoes and the bag and the whatchamacallit all had the same feeling of, like, I, this is not my home. I'm I'm lost in this place. Yeah, I mean, but also there was that weird look with the Santa Claus, that awkward eye contact that lasted for, like, a good four seconds. And I'm right. like, what is that about? Which happened after she found the shoes in the box. Right. But, but before she found the suitcase. And I just thought, what does that mean? Because that's not going to be there as a useless thing. Like, we don't, we know the Santa Clauses are everywhere. But it was a very long moment that she looked at him and he gave her a knowing look. Like, he, I don't know. I don't know what that was about. But I was like, that's something. I got that because in her description of the Santa Claus that stole her bag. Yes. She said that he had green elf pants on. Oh, and did that guy have that green guy elf pants? That guy had green elf pants Okay, on. see, I figured she was looking at him like, you stole my, yeah. you stole my stuff. I think it was a kind of, maybe you stole it, and yeah. he was like, maybe I, I did. did. But you, it's not like she can turn him in. It's just another criminal that she can't put right. away. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And the, the Santa Claus convention. <laughs> which which is just a one, like, uh, you could argue a, a superfluous and unnecessary bit of color, but a very specific and fun so, one. It's yes. great. By the way, look up, uh, there's uh, this American Life episode called Santa Claus Fight Club that is about uh, a Santa Claus convention that goes horribly wrong between two warring factions of professional <laughs> Santa Claus. <laughs> it's really good, and I feel like... Whoever wrote this was the was a fan of this what is American the, life. What is the point of contention between these two factions of you clauses? Know, you know what? I totally forget. It's been a while since I watched it, but I, I just listened to that episode because I think it probably states it pretty clear. Okay. I will, I'm going to go looking for that. It's intense. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, so in the present, Gloria, uh, her investigation leads her to this Writer's Guild office where she acquires the screenplay for the planet Y. Right. And that leads her to track down the still-alive Howard Zimmerman. By the way, just a footnote. One thing, uh, it's hard to catch, but I love how in the screenplay, just a simple way to show that it's changed too much from the original adaptation to the screenplay, Mm -hmm. Y is spelled Mm W-H-Y. So it's planet W-H-Y in the screenplay, but in the show, in the book, it's... W-Y-H. I think it's W-Y-H. W-Y-H, which I think was just a nice little showing that it's already been ruined. 
Yeah. Because the, the whole point of the name is... And the lady there at the WGA, she says, we don't represent book writers. And right. Gloria's like, that seems like an oversight. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you would... <laughs> everyone probably thinks that in the world, unless you live in L.A. And you're like, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's, and, and actually made me realize, yeah, it is It an is oversight. an oversight, but that's how they roll. Who represents novelists? <laughs> Who represents, like, book writers? It's all just freelance chaos mm-hmm. out there until you write a screenplay and then you're in a union. Yep. That makes no sense. Mm-mm. Not to, I say, let's have that strike. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Oh, you uh, should, no, you should do is start unionizing novelists. Yeah. yeah. Get Stephen King. And then write a screenplay about it, sell it. And then join the WGA. There you go. Because no, I wrote we, that screenplay. You make an NGA, okay? Novelist Guild of America, yes. Mr. Dave Child. Maybe there already is God. one. I don't know. There's not. If you are listening to our show I, and you are a member of a novelist union, please uh, like us, subscribe, us. rate us five stars, and let us know. So we, on we, iTunes. Yes, on iTunes. So... We meet the aged but still alive Howard Zimmerman, and we get this reveal of what ultimately happened between he and Tad. And essentially, Tad Tad discovered how badly he'd been taken advantage of, did not take the news Mm -hmm. uh, incredibly well, as you might imagine, and and beats Howard with a cane. Yep. Yeah. And also, uh, just another nod towards technology is he speaks with a voice box. Which works for him, but I thought that was another her interacting with technology in a weird way by talking to someone who talks like a robot. I feel like that's not by accident. Can't be. I think that's a nice little nod towards whatever technology statement they're kind of building. I was also curious as to whether they mixed little bits of Fred Melamed's performance in with the voice of this actor, or if this actor was just doing a really good... Fred Melamed because he has such a specific cadence and way of speaking. I agree. And obviously, if you're not going to have Fred Melamed record those lines, same character, you still need the cadence to be recognizable. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I was, I was unsure. Could not, could not decipher it with my own two ears. I also like how they cast the very small man (laughs) to be the older uh, Zimmerman, while you know Fred is a pretty large guy. So you just saw him how much he shrank in that time period. Mm-hmm. I uh, I also really like that in this flashback after he beats Howard and for all he knows he's killed him is about to hit Vivian as well stops himself and then hits her with you're a bad person yeah and then leaves and that if you're the type of person for whom that would actually mean something i.e. not a bad person I feel like that that's a huge gut punch. Yeah. Like you know yeah. what I mean? Like if you are genuinely a decent person, if you internalize that a certain way, that's about as profound uh, a non-physical hit as one can throw yeah. at you. If well, you are, she did call him a piggy bank. Right. Right. T W A T. I think it's also like I don't think you can argue against it though because oh no she my is... my point is my point is I think he's right but I mm-hmm. I think she is that but because she is that I doubt it is likely to have the resonance with her that he would hope yeah and I also think that she was right in the later scene when she's recounting the story the older Vivian and she says well he was also a, a bad, bad person, person too yeah. and I think that's also true and I think this is touching upon themes that Fargo has played with for its entire season and the movie, which is just uh, when that Minnesota nice kind of turns bad. 
and how it can it, kind of the question of good versus evil and how many like different types of good and bad there are sure yeah and also they were intimate and i think once they once they're intimate together once you hit somebody with those words yeah. after having you know together with someone i think it hits a little bit harder true cuz he had a, a crush on her you know sure. he was he was kind of going down that rabbit hole yeah he was he basically he was fell for her he yeah. was like i'm having a fun time just writing checks and and being with this lovely, lovely actress. Mm-hmm. And so we see the immediate fallout of this as part of the flashback where we do get, uh, presumably, I, I, or the way I read it was that Tad assumed that he had killed Zimmerman. And that's why he was reacting the way he was reacting. Um, and you, we see he, he throws up. He's so overcome with this this grief or, or whatever it is, this guilt. And he throws up in the toilet and that's where he sees it's uh, Dennis Stussy and Sons, but yeah. the D is rubbed off. Scratched mm-hmm. away. And that's where he gets the name from and presumably flees L.A. shortly thereafter. Right. Although, interesting, and I, I was doing a bunch of reading, a couple of you know different recaps, and I forget, I forget who pointed this out. I really wish I could attribute this uh, accurately, but someone... I think I know where you're going. Well, someone pointed out that he would have arrived in in Minnesota, North Dakota, wherever it was he was going, I think mm-hmm. Minnesota, uh, in about 1980. Yeah. And season two of Fargo took place in 79. Oh. And okay. I'm And I'm wondering if there might be some, any type of connection with any of the characters from season two. And maybe there, and maybe there is and we'll never know right. about it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. There was also, there was also some debate on some of the Reddit forums I saw about his age. I think this is maybe getting into the weeds a bit too much. But a lot of people felt like, how old would you say Stussy was in in the uh, when he was coming to the seven like the seventies? Does he? Because he's supposed to be, if the ages line up, he's supposed to be like forty seven in the seventies. Yeah, in the seventies. Yeah, he's a he was a young looking oh, forty seven no, before he started just... doing cocaine. That's what. Oh. That's where the problem is lying. Yeah, because he dies when he's eighty five in two thousand ten. And that means oh. if you take 2010 and go 40 years back, he should be in his 40s somewhere. And he kind of looks like he's in his 20s. He That's looks late 20s. He does look like issue. a young guy. Yeah, so is that a casting issue? Is it? I think it might be in the weeds to assume that it's going to be... I think it might have been a mistake, but there's a possibility maybe they're hinting at the idea that it's not even... It's not even the Stussy we know. It's like somewhere right. he got Different. replaced by yeah. another older guy. Which That's brings true. us back to which brings us back to the the non contradiction. Like he is and is not. Right. And also, yeah. I would have to say this conversation we've just had reminds me of the first episode where they're talking about Yuri and Yuri being in the same being room of, as. Yeah, and they're in the same place, yet they're different ages. Yep. So they can't be the same person because right. they're different ages. That seems like more of a coincidence. At first, I thought it was weeds, but then we've been talking about this, and I think <laughs> I thought about the first episode. Now I'm like, oh, uh oh, now I'm on this train. Right. Now I'm on this. Like, who knows? Well, I had I had a similar thought when she ended up in the same motel room that that. Tad later Ennis ended up in. It was much like that story from the opening of that first episode where he's mistaken for Yuri Gurkha just by virtue of accidentally ending up in the same couple of rooms mm-hmm. that Yuri right. Gurkha occupied. So it could end up being accidentally in the same room. I mean, it's mistaken identities keep happening here, but right and and again, law of non-contradiction. You can't mm-hmm. 
be this person and not and, be this person at the same time. Yeah. Right. So in this last conversation, uh, after we come back from the flashback, you know, uh, Gloria's trying to connect this with the murder and finds that there's no, in, in her view, there's no clear, direct way to do that. And it's in that conversation with, with the older Vivian where that idea of, well, this was just a story comes yeah. from. And again, like hitting that, you know, specifically right on the head, but in a, in a way that completely fits in context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Gloria goes home and, uh, you know, her, her new boss, Shea Wiggum, uh, Sheriff Moe, has been looking for her, is not super happy that she she did, a, she actually committed an act of defiance, essentially, and left without permission. Right. She goes home and she and her son are the only people at, at poor old Dennis's funeral because apparently he was not, the people who knew him didn't seem to care for him all that much. He was not a popular guy. Mm-mm. He was rather bitter. No. But we can maybe see why if this was the same Edis that he was coming from he never got over his like broken hollywood career right to work at a general store they never do they never do <laughs> just before uh gloria and her son embark on an arby's run uh, arby's i love how fargo was brought to you by arby's this season yep <laughs> but they she gets the jacket on uh maurice lefay yeah and so finally it's like well this is the guy that did it and hey Dude's dead. Freak accident. Air conditioner. Mm-hmm. It fell yeah, on him. In, but in winter? That's that's a little weird. That's it. That's why it's a little weird. Also, I do want to bring up, um, before we go too far off, Icy Spots has mentioned that the Christmas Santa Claus backdrop adds as a counterpoint to the plot. Shane Black uses Christmas themes in his movies, which is very true. And I think it's also appropriate that she's coming from um, Fargo or she's coming from Eden Valley which looks like the North Pole yes. to LA and yet they're all dressed as Santas. I did and I appreciate the Shane Black reference especially yes. like an LA set Christmas story yeah. it did with feel Christmas very as Shane a back- Black. backdrop. Yeah, I thought of Shane Black more than once. Also after seeing Nice Guys recently which is all set in the mm-hmm. 70s yes. and that smoggy LA which is they they tried to do the same sort of hazy smog in this one too. So now, after we've spent an hour exploring the, the secret origins of Anastasi, we do finally have Gloria in a position of, we, we have, we don't have answers, but we have a potential lead that we can now follow. And I assume that we're going to continue to see her following that next week. Mm-hmm. But guys, let's talk about robots. <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about cartoon robots for a minute because this yeah. was such a departure from what I'm used to seeing on this show. And overall, it worked, it worked for me, even though it took my brain a couple of minutes to adjust. Wanted to get a sense of how you guys felt about these animated interstitials. Mm-hmm. I liked them. It wasn't the... St- the style doesn't match up with with uh, Fargo as much as other things. Something about it seemed a bit more modern. It uh, The animation was. was done... I had to write this down. The animation was done by Floyd County Productions, which is the studio behind Archer. Yeah. But reminded me, and, and a couple other people who's, who's writing on this episode I read, reminded me a lot of the work of Don Hertzfeld. Don Hertzfeld. And actually, in that interview on Hollywood Reporter, the... Uh, John Cameron says Hertzfeld was definitely the touchstone. So spot on, my friend. All right, because <laughs> the interviewer asked the same thing because it was a lot like World of Tomorrow, which is kind of his newest short that Don Hertzfeld's done. If no one's seen Don Hertzfeld stuff, look it up. You'll be amazed. Look at rejected shorts. Yeah, you'll that was my way in. Was rejected. Yeah, you'll be quoting "I am a spoon" like crazy. After that. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm feeling fat and sassy. 
My anus is bleeding. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, but also, too, I, if I was not very much mistaken, I believe the voices are all being done by our Fargo cast. Yeah. Yep. Like, I picked out Ewan McGregor's voice. Yes, it was him in the beginning and, at that spaceship. And then I yeah. think David Thewlis was the one who gave our poor robot the, the order to shut himself down. Yep. Which... That that can't be a coincidence that you get the actor playing VM Varga to be the one to have your 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 robot face his inescapable reality and shut yes. himself down. Right, yes. cannot be an accident. Right, yes. but I also thought during during the robot one of the the sequences it said during recharge he's vulnerable to attack and I'm like yeah but Gloria never recharges a, a little bit like mm-hmm. she doesn't have she's not as vulnerable because there are so many similarities where at the end I mean it cuts to uh, where. Uh, where is it? Where it cuts to the robot and then it cuts to her like and she's asleep where I'm like, yeah, they're like almost the same. Do you think that's maybe foreshadowing? Yeah, I wrote... maybe, yeah. Yes, I, I do. I think I actually wrote the words foreshadowing. Because maybe in a future episode she's going to get hurt while she's recharging. Yeah. While she's sleeping. Yeah. And normally yeah. She, she doesn't recharge because she right. doesn't have those things around her. She's just always... Well, and, and you could you could view it two ways. I, I really like that reading of it as a metaphorical recharge, but then mm-hmm. also going back to her relationship with technology, right. she literally never has to she recharge, to recharge devices the way that everybody else is so dependent on doing. And we've True. already seen how being dependent on technology has already gotten more than one character in trouble already. Yeah, She literally doesn't have to recharge and as such is free of the same dependencies, maybe a little more if not clear-headed, certainly got a different vantage point than everybody else does because everybody else is is consumed with whatever it is that they have to recharge, as it were. Right. right. And she doesn't have to do that. Yeah. And you can also... Uh, do you think Ennis was hurt and killed when he was recharging? or He was kind of in a constant state of recharge. He was just drunk and surly, and no matter where you caught him, he was going to feel like he was recharging. I'm still... One thing I'm still stuck on a little bit that maybe I don't need to be maybe it's as simple as it is but why why did Maurice glue his mouth and nose shut mm. that seems real that sp- is an odd specific thing very especially considering everything else we think we know about Maurice and why he was there did he glue his nose shut or was it just the mouth I believe I it, was, it was just the mouth I thought it was the mouth and nose oh really okay she says the line like well, he was his his mouth was glued shut. I thought it would be an open and close right. case, yeah. but that is weird. That is weird. It feels like he's he maybe ran out of tape, so he just went with like crazy glue. But he even even Maurice must have known that would kill him. That would kill him. Yeah, instantly. So, but I, I don't. Maybe we'll get an answer to this. Maybe it's another mystery we have to embrace. But right. I assume there's there's bigger stuff at play than what we've seen so far. On that note, I think maybe is a good time to jump in and yeah. predict a little bit. Yeah. Let's do predictions. Let's predict some stuff. Let's predict it. And now, Aliens. You're after Buzz TV. Predictions. Well, I think we're going to get tied into a little bit into the Aliens of Season 2. If not literally thematically. Because in the interview at The Hollywood Reporter... John Cameron was asked about the uh, what the cartoon had to do with the aliens from season two because they seemed very similar. There was you know UFOs and beaming ups and mm-hmm. downs, 
And he said, I can't talk to you about that. I feel like it's going to get played out, and you'll see. We'll just let it play out. Okay. So I don't know if it's going to be a literal, like, nod towards the aliens, or if it's just going to be kind of a um, kind of a thematic thing. But I think it's leading up to that. Something like that. Yeah. Well, I think that we're... I think we'll dive even deeper into Gloria's story, even though I know this was episode was, like, really focused on her. We've The one thing that Zimmerman said to her was that he, he talked a lot about particles and collisions and how they don't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. And when he was saying all of that to Gloria, she legitimately looked hurt by it. She's like, well, what do you think it means? Like, she was actually engaged, where I'm like, this is just an old guy who's, like, doesn't even care about you and is telling you about particles. And she seemed fully engaged and somewhat like when he's like it does it just doesn't matter anymore right and uh she was like her she just looks sad uh and and cut to like the diner later that day where she's like this is just a story that led to nowhere right where it's like nothing is working in her world right now she's like an ex-chief people kept calling her chief they're calling her the wrong name like her her stepdad died she's going down all these wrong rabbit holes and she's like the be- probably the best chief she's got Donnie Mashman as her sidekick who doesn't even know what the the look up the stuff is so called. What do you call it? The yeah. database. You call it the database, right? And I'm like, <laughs> the struggle is real for her. And and I think um, I think in the next episode, I think we'll see how those struggles maybe come to more of a realization for her, where she might actually truly get hurt. Right now, it's a lot of metaphors, but I think later, I think she might actually might be not so good. Cool. I, I'm curious. I think maybe you guys are on to something. We're going to see when we return next week. But in the meantime, until we convene again. My friends, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at Mr. Dave Child or DaveChild.com. My name is Dave Child. <laughs> Guys, go and find me on YouTube.com backslash Tara Erickson or follow me on Twitter at the Tara Erickson. And I am all over social media at the Lex Michael. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Be sure to come back every week at the same time. We're going to be breaking down every episode of this season of Fargo. We hope to see you there. We love you. Follow, review us, five stars. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the host only. Do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 